So we come uh, today to uh, a major, um, just a you know, shift in the story here in the book of Acts. And of course, uh, we know already what that is as, as we've looked at the, uh, the conversion of Saul, as John just read um, that for us today. So I've, I've just entitled the message uh, simply, Saul and Jesus on the road to Damascus. But let's remember that Jesus had said that the gospel would go from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, ultimately out to the ends of the earth. Uh, that, that the gospel would cross uh, the borders of the land of Israel and, and go out to the Gentile nations. Now, as the time draws near for that to take place, God calls and begins to prepare the man who is to be his instrument. But who, who would have ever imagined uh, that the man ordained by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles was at that very moment in time the church's greatest enemy and persecutor. I mean, this is one of those things where um, it's really a, a surprise in so many ways. And of course, we're, we're so far removed from the event and you know, we're, we're familiar with the facts, at least most of us are, I think. I still do find occasionally that um, there are people who have no idea that Paul the Apostle was formerly uh, Saul of Tarsus. Um, but at the time that all of this took place, you know, you can be, I think, pretty certain that, that no one was thinking that this guy, our, our greatest opponent, uh, is one day going to be uh, the greatest advocate for the gospel. But this is just one of those uh, amazing things that, that God does. And the conversion of Saul of Tarsus from persecutor to apostle is really one of the great miracles of the New Testament period. I mean, this is a miraculous thing from start to finish, as we can see. Um, a man who was known as Lord Littleton, uh, an English statement and skeptic uh, who originally set out to disprove Christianity by disproving the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. He and his friend uh, thought that if they could disprove the conversion of Saul and disprove the resurrection of Jesus, then, of course, they could just disprove Christianity. And so they set out on a mission to do that. But when it was all said and done, um, this is what Lord Littleton ended up writing. He said, the conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone duly considered is of itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. So these guys that set out to undermine the Christian faith by trying to disprove these things as actually, you know, having occurred historically, ended up uh, through the process acknowledging that these were indeed not, not just historical facts, but indeed miraculous events that took place. So so what we want to do, I, I had John uh, read quite a few verses, as you know, but I wanted us to, to just get the whole story. And now I, wa I want us to walk through 
um, the verses that we read. And um, I wanna look at a few things. Number one, I wanna look at Saul in his pre-conversion state. And then we'll look at his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And then I wanna talk about his, uh, Saul's conversion process, which is uh, hidden here in a sense, but it's there. And then um, we'll look real quickly at Saul and uh, these, these two other men that are mentioned here, Ananias and uh, Barnabas. And then ultimately we will just kind of look for application for today. So many, there are many places in the New Testament where these events and the things that surrounded these events are referred to. Um, Luke has, has already uh, told us certain things about, um, about this man, Saul. If we just think back for a minute, back into uh, the, the previous chapters, uh, we, we read there that the witnesses... Um, those who witnessed against Stephen, remember all, all of this kind of uh, came about through the, through the death of Stephen, uh, but they laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So that was our very first introduction to Saul. He was guarding uh, the clothing of those who were executing Stephen. And uh, Luke goes on to say, now Saul was consenting to Stephen's death and he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And now here in the first verses of chapter nine, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, again, we're reading about this as history. We're obviously very far removed from it. Um, but you know, there are people today that, that they know this story by experience. It's not Saul but it, it's somebody else who's doing this kind of thing to them. So understand, I mean, you know, I think, I know that I do. Sometimes you just read over these things and you know, you're, you're just reading over and you don't stop to think about the reality of what this was like for those Christians at the time. This, this would have been like, um, you know, the Gestapo beating down your door or, or the KGB or the Taliban or, you know, the secret police of whatever sort, you know, that, that's the kind of thing that was going on. And as we see here, uh, Saul is breathing out threats and murder and he's hauling people off. And so Luke tells us about that. But Paul, Saul, of course, is Paul, right? Um, he will make reference to these things himself in his writings, as he writes his letters in writing to the Galatians, he said this, he said, I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and I tried to destroy it. In writing to Timothy, he said, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor and an insolent man. Insolent meaning a violently arrogant man. And then um, when later on in Acts, when Saul is there before King Agrippa, um, he tells his story once again, and, and listen to what he says. He says, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. 
and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is Paul telling his conversion story to King Agrippa. And, and notice the, the, the language that he uses here. He says that he, he compelled them to blaspheme. When they were put to death, he cast his vote against them. Um, he was exceedingly enraged against them. The language used of Saul and later even by Saul to describe himself at the time was really that of a wild beast. That, that's really the, the imagery here, that he was like a ferocious beast uh, just ripping uh, anything and everything to shreds that, that he could get his, you know, sink his teeth or his claws into. That's how he presents himself. So this would have been just, a, you know, a very frightening season, to say the least, for the believers because of this one man, Saul. But who would have ever guessed that, that as he had received those uh, letters from the high priest and, and as he was on his way to Damascus. Now, what, what it appears here is that uh, many of the saints fled from Jerusalem and went to Damascus where there was a, a large Jewish community and they would have assimilated into the synagogues there. So he gets letters from the high priest giving him permission to go into these synagogues and to arrest anyone who is of the way, that was, um, that was how they referred to believers at the time, anyone who is of the way, and to bring them bound back to Jerusalem. So that brings us to the next part in the story. And as we read there, as he is traveling uh, with, with a, a delegation to uh, Damascus, we read there, that suddenly a light, verse three, shone around him from heaven. Now, when he repeats the story in Acts 26 to Agrippa, he says that the light that shone around him was brighter than the midday sun. You know, imagine being in the, in the desert in the Middle East at midday, you got a pretty bright sun going. He says the light then uh, that, that shone around him was actually brighter than the midday sun. And so it says that he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And look at verse six. So he trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So this moment, um, you know, this is one of those, those events that you only hope that this was captured on film so we can see it uh, in the future, what, what this would have looked like. Um, you know, just, just recently, somebody uh, produced a film on the life of Paul or on the you know, ministry of Paul. We saw it here a few weeks ago. We previewed it. It's going to come out in March. And um, 
they actually did. Uh, they, they did a pretty good job. Uh, but, but just showing these events and, you know, kind of just, I'm pretty critical when it comes to stuff on the screen that uh, is of a biblical nature because so often you feel like, no, they, that's not what it looked like. They, they didn't, no, that, that's not it. They should have consulted me. I would have told them like, hey, no, it, this is what it, <laughs> this is what it, it looked like. Uh, but they actually did a, a pretty good job of depicting this. But um, just, you know, again, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So uh, he, Saul is struck down by this light. The, this voice begins to speak to him. And the big question is, who are you? And the response is, I am Jesus. But notice Paul's question, who are you, Lord? He, he knows that uh, whoever this is, he, he knows enough to refer to them as, as the Lord, as um, the sovereign. And so we see what seems like, I mean, it, it was sudden in one sense, obviously, because, you know, he's um, dead set on his mission. And in many ways, um, you know, th there's no sense that there was any kind of uh, softness that was developing in him. There, there was no uh, second thought about what he was doing. He, he was just on this mission, continuing to, to devastate the church. But there were things that were happening that um, led up to this moment. So on the one hand, it's a sudden conversion, but from what Jesus says to him, we have to understand that there was a process that had begun at some point because Jesus says this to him. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that mean? Well, a goad was used by the farmer to prod the cattle, to prod the ox. And it was painful. And the ox would, you know, as the ox would kick back against the goad, it would cause the ox pain and the ox would eventually uh, stop doing that because of the pain. So Jesus uses that picture and he says it to Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, which shows us that there actually was a process and that Saul, even though externally it didn't appear that there was even the remotest conviction about his behavior, uh, there, there was something going on in him. And what was that? And, and how did that even begin to occur? Now, now, some people have speculated, and I think it's a legitimate speculation. Some people have speculated that, that Saul had actually had uh, an encounter with Jesus during the earthly ministry of Jesus. Now, he never says that he did. Although it, to the Corinthians, he does, on, on one, in one place he says, we have known Christ after the flesh, but now we know him thus no longer. So it could be there that he's making just a little reference to having some kind of uh, encounter with Jesus. But if you think of what he says about himself, he says that he was brought up in Jerusalem. He was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. We know he was a student of Gamaliel. 
um, you know, all of these things that are happening, it hasn't been all that long since the events uh, surrounding the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus had taken place. So in some ways you could easily understand that, that Saul would have been in and around Jerusalem at the same time that Jesus was there. And when we read in the gospels about those times where the Pharisees would gather against him and they would uh, you know, interrogate him and they would challenge him and, and those kinds of things. I mean, it, it is possible that Saul was among them. So it's possible that at some point there was some, uh, you know, engagement with Jesus. It's speculative. We don't know for sure. But of course, if there was, then we would understand how uh, with the other additional things that that would have become something that would, would stick with him. And that would become something that would, you know, uh, be a goad prodding at him. So we're not sure whether or not that happened, but this is what we do know for sure. Uh, of course, the testimony and the witness of Stephen would have been definitely, um, I think, part of what Jesus was referring to here when he says it's hard for you to kick against the goat. Because Stephen... He, he preaches basically the gospel to the Sanhedrin of which Paul was almost certainly a part. When Paul says to Agrippa, when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, that is, would seem to refer to uh, casting his vote as a member of that religious body. So when Stephen gives his defense of the faith, of course, we know Saul was there when they were stoning him, but it's perfectly reasonable to think that he was there listening to the whole message. And here's this young man, Stephen, whose face is shining as an angel, who in the power of the Holy Spirit is walking Israel's leaders through their national history and at the end of it, calling them to put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah and pointing to the fact that they were guilty of, of putting him to death. So that coupled with then the witness of Stephen dying. So Saul is there guarding the clothing of those who are putting Stephen to death, but he sees everything that's happening. He sees that Stephen is looking up into heaven. He sees that Stephen is saying, uh, Lord, do not lay this sin to their account. He sees that far from uh, Stephen, you know, being greatly distressed over the fact that he's being stoned to death, there's, there's a glory to it. There's, there's something supernatural that's happening. So he sees this. And this would have undoubtedly been one of the things that, that would have been a goad. But there's one other thing that, I think we can say was the case as well, because Paul says it later. In writing to the Romans, Paul talks about a point in time, although he doesn't tell us when that point was. He talks about a time when he had a sudden awakening to his own sinfulness. Now, he talks about how he was confident as a Pharisee, 
how uh, according to the law, uh, the standard of the law, he said to the Philippians, he said he was blameless. But in writing to the Romans in the seventh chapter, he says this, he said the commandment, which is a reference to the law, he said the commandment that I thought would give life, I found it to bring death. So there's a certain point in his own experience where he begins to realize that all of his outward goodness, all of his religious uh, devotion, all of that really doesn't mean anything because he begins to understand that, that he's a sinner. He says when the commandment came or when he understood the, the fullness of the commandment that it was meant not to just um, deal with outward behavior. He said when the commandment came and I understood uh, that it was also to govern the, the thoughts and the intents of the heart. When the commandment came, sin awakened and I died. So, so that was a, an experience he had. So we see that even though it seems like just a, a completely sudden conversion, I mean, it was in one sense, but there was a process that had been taking place. And now this is the culmination of that process. But it's a process, and this, I, I want to emphasize this, it's a process that nobody else knew about. You see, this is important for us, and I'll, I'll apply it in a minute, but it's important for us to recognize that even when we can't see that God is at work in people, he might very well be. And, and we, we need to learn not to you know, be so concerned over the fact that we don't see outward things happening necessarily and, and be more confident that um, you know, God, God can be at work. I, I've talked to so many people over the years who um, told me that even though outwardly there didn't appear to be any conviction of sin or any uh, sense that they needed to get themselves right with God, the truth of the matter was that was all going on in their hearts and minds, even though they were doing a really good job of, of keeping that um, hidden. So that is what we see here. We see this, this process that was taking place. And so Saul, as he's arrested really by Jesus, uh, he's sent into Damascus and um, this man, Ananias, and we don't know anything about him except what we read here, but um, he was obviously a, a uh, you know, a solid believer in Jesus the Messiah. And the Lord appears to him and tells him to go Arise, verse 11, uh, go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man and how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem 
And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on your name. So everybody knew why this man was coming to town. And I love the way Jesus responds. But the Lord said to him, go. (laughs) For he is a chosen vessel of mine. Now this must have absolutely blown Ananias' mind. What? He's a chosen vessel of yours. He's a chosen vessel of mine, Jesus said. And he will bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, as we go on and we read through the story, did you notice when we get to the end of the, the portion that we read today, it is almost like Saul has taken the place of Stephen. And the very same things that Stephen was encountering, remember it was the Hellenistic Jews that brought Stephen before the Sanhedrin to condemn him. And and now at the end of this story, we find it's the Hellenistic Jews that are trying to kill this man now because of his faith. So it's, it's, it's almost like uh, the Lord has just moved Saul, the great persecutor, into that, that place that, that Stephen had held. But going back to Ananias, Ananias, he welcomes, he's, he's the Lord's servant to welcome Saul into the family of God, really. And when he comes to him and it says that he lays his hand on him and he said these words, brother Saul. Now, again, let's try to put ourselves in, in the position of, of Saul for a moment. And, and it becomes obvious, we referred to those places where he talks about this period of his life. It becomes obvious that this is something that, that Saul never got over. He, of course, knew he was forgiven. He knew that God had showed him mercy. But you can, I think, be pretty sure that this episode in his life as the persecutor and the destroyer of the church, this stuck with him all the rest of his life. As a matter of fact, in writing to the Corinthians at one point, when he talks about being an apostle, he said, I am not worthy to be an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So, so this remained with him. So with that in mind, think of what it must have been like for, for him to, to feel, he's blind, remember, to feel this man's touch and to hear these words, Brother Saul. So Ananias is, uh, he's God's man to, to bring Saul in and to let him know that he is now part of the family of God. And, and with Ananias, and then, if we just follow the story out, we come to Barnabas and, and Barnabas does a similar thing, but in a slightly different way because Ananias sort of welcomes him into the body, to the family of God. But Barnabas then takes him and introduces him to the apostles and, and vouches for him and the, the validity of his ministry. So with both of these men, Ananias and Barnabas, you see men who are an important part in the, the discipleship of, of this man, Saul. 
And there's a lesson here for us too. You know, when people come to faith, they need to be welcomed in. And we need to be open to being those people that God might use. You know, because especially when somebody comes from, just think of the world that, that Saul came from. Now, had there not been an Ananias and, and had Saul just tried to go and join the church, I mean, he had a hard enough time already joining the church as we read here. But just think if there was no one like Ananias to come along and to sort of take him by the hand and to bring him along. It would have been maybe a different story. And so as we think today of people coming out of uh, sin and darkness and, and all of those things, how important is it for us to be um, open to being that instrument that God would use to bring them in and to, to welcome them into this new life? And, and in some cases to actually be the one that would encourage them in the call of God upon their lives uh, to, to move forward in the ministry. Now, what are the lessons from the story here? Well, the first lesson would be simply that those who seem the farthest from salvation could be closer than you think. So, Let's not despair. Let's not give up. Let's not think that, you know, there, there's no way that that person is ever going to come around. I, I am sure that many of you would say uh, there's somebody in your life that you've been praying for for a long time, and it doesn't seem like they're any closer to believing than they were, you know, 10 or 20 years ago when you started praying for them. Is there anybody like that? You feel that way this morning? That, that's a reality that we all live with, right? And, and we have a tendency to, to think that it's hopeless. Nothing's ever going to happen. Nothing's ever going to change. But one of the things that this account shows us is that people could be closer than we think. But, but like I said about Saul, nobody knew, and, and this is often the case too, when there is inner conviction taking place, sometimes there's a greater fight against it that shows itself outwardly. You know, you, you've heard the, the saying, um, you know, the dog that barks the loudest is the one that got hit. And it, this, is, this has been seen so many times over. You know, the loudest, the most vocal, the most uh, hostile, uh, you know, the, 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 the person who's just going out of their way to blaspheme and things like that. You know, sometimes that's the person that's actually the closest. And, and these things are hitting close to home. That's why they're that's why they're reacting the way they're reacting. There was a, a man back during the, the 1700s. George, George Whitfield and John Wesley were two well-known 
preachers uh, in England and in the, what were the British colonies at the time. And uh, they were used extraordinarily to, to literally lead thousands of, and thousands, tens of thousands, in some cases, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people uh, to faith in Christ. Uh, they, they preached in the open fields and, you know, 10, 20,000 people would come. You know, it was just a time of a, of a great outpouring of God's spirit. And they, they had their enemies. And um, with Whitfield, there was a band of men that, that followed him wherever he went for the sole purpose of disrupting his preaching. And there, the ringleader of this was a man named Thorpe. And, and this man, Thorpe, he had perfected um, mimicking George Whitfield. He perfected his mannerisms, his tone of voice, the phrases he would use. And so he would get a crowd around and mockingly preach like he was George Whitfield. And, you know, he was a celebrity as a result of that. You know, he was the mocker. And, and many people loved it. Well, on one occasion, as he was doing that, as he was mocking Whitfield, and as, as he was preaching, he came under the conviction of the Spirit. Everything that he was saying in his mockery of Whitfield suddenly began to, to pierce his heart and to convict him. He fell down on his knees and repented in the midst of one of these moments. And became after that Whitfield's greatest advocate and dedicated the rest of his life to supporting and helping Whitfield in his evangelistic ministry. That's the kind of stuff that can happen. And um, so let's not forget that. Those that are seemingly the farthest from salvation could be closer than we think. The second thing, which is sort of tied to it, but let's just remember, no one is beyond the grace of God. No one is beyond the grace of God. And, and I think all of us, I know I do at times, I have a tendency to just, you know, you look at a certain person and you just think, man, you know, there, there's no way this person could ever come to Christ. We don't hold out any hope for that whatsoever, but we need to know, we need to remember, no one is beyond the grace of God. Listen to what Paul said when he wrote to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, he said this, he said, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul says, I am living proof that anybody can be saved. That's what he's saying. He's saying, Jesus has, has put me forth as an example to, to show that there's, there's no one that has gone too far, that can't be saved, forgiven, redeemed, if they will but turn. So let's not forget that. 
And even as we see in our culture today, these voices that are becoming more um, antagonistic and louder and louder in the culture in, in their uh, hostility to Christ, let's recognize that even those people are not beyond the grace of God. The third thing that I want us to see here is there, there is a collision in conversion. Every conversion story will include a collision story. And what I mean by that is this, a moment where your life or belief or worldview collides with God's reality. See, that's what conversion is. Conversion is a collision with God and his reality. And and this is especially true for those with a very defined worldview. Now, you know, Saul was a man with a very defined worldview. He completely uh, was convinced that his understanding, his view of life, of, of right and wrong, his view of God, he was, he was completely convinced that it was all perfectly accurate. Absolutely, airtight. But what does he find out in an instant? That he was dead wrong. He couldn't have been more wrong, his ideas of God. He's persecuting the God that he thinks he's serving. And so there's this collision which, which basically breaks all of his presuppositions. It breaks all of his uh, former ideas. It takes that, that worldview that he had and it just completely shatters it. And you know, this is what happens when we come to Christ. And like I said, especially for somebody like a Saul or somebody like, a, you know, let's just say a real avowed atheist or a real avowed... Um, you know, deep, maybe a deeply religious person of another religious conviction. Um, what happens is there's this collision and they come to the realization that what they thought is absolutely incorrect. But that's what happens. God breaks that stuff down and he brings us into contact with, with what is actually true. He brings us into contact uh, with his reality. And sometimes it's the people who have those, those most uh, defined views that are the most vocal about them and the ones that seemingly are immovable. But again, remember, that's, that's what Saul was. But everything changed. He had the collision and he knew in an instant that he was wrong. He said, who are you, Lord? Finally, how did Saul go from a vicious, hate-filled persecutor to a gracious, love-filled servant? Because that's what happened to him. How did that happen? Well, it happened simply because Jesus, whom he was persecuting, became his Lord. 
And that's how this radical transformation takes place. When Jesus becomes the Lord, and, and his own words, Paul's, Saul's words, he says, what would you have me to do, Lord? And when we have that collision and our whole understanding of reality is dashed to bits, and, and we suddenly realize that, no, I'm wrong, and and. God is right, and, and Jesus is right, and, and the Bible is right. And at that moment that we say, Lord, what would you have me to do? We put ourselves on a course to go from whatever it might have been. And in his case, it was from, from a vicious, hate-filled persecutor. But from whatever we were, we put ourselves on a course to go now into a life that honors and glorifies God. And so the last thing that I wanna say as we close is this, that this is an extraordinary event for sure. And it's certainly not the experience of everybody who becomes a Christian. But let's not forget that it's not something that just happened back then and we should never expect for it to happen in our generation. It is something that we need to understand. It can and it will occur, and it has occurred at strategic times throughout history. There are those times and those places where God just lays his hand on somebody in an extraordinary fashion and, and does what seems to be the impossible, and then takes that person and does extraordinary things with them. And so all of that to say as we close, let's, let's not lose hope that the things that we read about in the stories here in the book of Acts, let's not lose hope that those things cannot be a reality for us today because they very well can. And people around you, people that you're familiar with and people that maybe you think are the least likely candidates for salvation could be the very ones that are so close. Just keep planting those seeds. Just keep watering. Just keep you know, being, being present in their life. You know, there, there are sometimes, there are certain people, I have to confess, there are certain people sometimes that I just am so, like, fed up with. <laughs> you know, I just, I seriously, I just want to write them off. And just about the time I am ready to do that, you know, the Lord says, Brian, I put you in their life. So just be in their life and don't worry about all of this other stuff. Just that, that's not your problem. That's my problem. I'll deal with it. But, but you, just, you just stay in their life. Because remember that process that was going on with Saul of Tarsus that nobody knew about. Maybe he had a face-to-face, eye-to-eye encounter with Jesus. Maybe not, but maybe he did. But he certainly was radically impacted by Stephen, even though you never would have known it at the time because he's helping people kill him. But then even 
below that, there's something happening in him that the Holy Spirit is doing. And it's showing him that his righteousness is worthless. And that's the very thing that he had put all of his confidence in. But the Spirit was doing that. And, and that's what the Spirit does. And he often does it through our presence, our prayers, our connection with people around us. So Lord, help us uh, from this story. Help us to take heart and to be encouraged at your great power and at your amazing grace, Lord, that would save uh, somebody like Saul of Tarsus and turn him into uh, the beloved Apostle Paul that we are all so thankful for. And Lord, maybe there are today around us men and women that we would never think uh, could be future servants of Christ. Maybe they're blasphemers of Christ right now. Maybe they're persecutors of Christians. Maybe they have just um, demonstrated through their behavior and through their words uh, something that to us would just put them in a place where it would seem impossible for them to be saved. Lord, help us to walk away from this story knowing that with you all things are possible. That's our prayer. And Lord, I would pray today too if there's a single person with us that has yet to yield their life to Jesus. Maybe they've, they've experienced that collision Maybe everything that they've thought has just been shattered and made, Lord, your reality press in on them and may they be drawn to you, we pray in Jesus' name.